Well, GJ, it's sweet 16. Here it is. The coming of age. It's a special time in any young girl's life. Yeah. <laughs> but not in the podcast, because... No, we, we, we don't have 16 candles around, so... Oh, I was John, gonna... Unfortunately, John Hughes is no longer with us to write us a decent script, so... Oh, that's right. I believe the first episode of Community was dedicated to John Hughes, and can I just say, for those who haven't watched it, do yourself a favour. <laughs> John Hughes, don't you senior forget high about, school. Don't, yeah. you, don't you forget about John Hughes. Yeah. Well, let's get straight into it. Someone who's, oh, well, we're talking about Sweet 16 and that, but someone who's proven that 30 is the new 20, Roger Federer. Yeah, I mean, how about the... The I R-Fed. Mean, probably the only thing that's more impressive than than Fed's effort of winning seven Wimbledons is the guy who backed him in before he'd won one to win seven. That's right, the guy who and who's now had, like, $140,000 donated to a British charity. Because, Oxfam. Yeah. yeah, because he won the seventh. But, I mean, Roger Federer, we salute thee. That is... I said to Timbo, I remember a couple of years back, I said... He might win Wimbledon a couple more times, but I think other than that, his Grand Slams are done. And I never thought in a million years he'd get back to number one in the world. Not with yeah. Nadal and Djokovic well, I mean, at, their, at their peak. You could argue Wimbledon was the redemption uh, the redemption Grand Slam with yep. Serena Williams also coming back and winning. Yep. And she had to beat, she had to beat Kvitova and Azarenka yeah. on the way. So you've got the defending champion and the woman who I reckon is probably, you know, all services, all conditions and that, the best tennis player yeah. in the female well, think, side of things I today. I think I called her the Tiger Woods of the female yeah. tennis world at one stage. Is that, is, is that a black reference? No, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's a reference to the, when they want to, I still think that yeah. they're the best in the world. No, when they're fully yeah. fit, yeah. I still believe that they're the best in the world. But when they're fighting for a cause... Yeah. I mean, I still remember a few years back when she came to the Australian Open and they, they made fun of her after the first round and they had pictures of her on the front of the Australian yeah. saying she had a fat ass and stuff like that. And I just remember... might not have been quite as subtle as that. I think it was a wide load comment. Oh, maybe. yeah. <laughs> something like that, yeah. And I just remember she had that look in her eye at the press conference after that saying, you know what? Fuck the lot of you. I'm going to win this bloody tournament. Mm. Dennis Lilly bowling Queensland out for, for 62 when they were chasing 77 against WA in the Shield final. It was the, uh, we can win this fucking game sort of thing. She yeah. just she just had that sort of intense concentration going, you know what, I'm going to stick this up all of your asses and I'm going to win this bloody thing. Yeah. And yeah, Dennis Lilly did exactly that. And now Serena and Federer have... Proven their dad was wrong. Well, once well, again, you'd have to say for Serena, but yeah. for Federer, um, I really didn't think he had uh, get, getting back to number one. I thought that Sampras record would would stand the test of time. But now yeah. it's hard. It's hard to see anyone breaking breaking that record. That's one of. I mean, that's like Bradman's ninety nine point nine four. I don't yeah. know that that will ever be broken. Unless, yeah, mate, you know Nadal at the French. Which well, is, I mean, which oh, is which I is, mean, which is becoming about as regular as uh, the sun rising in the morning these yeah. days. Oh, I was going to say, if I, I think we discussed this before. If I had to pick any tennis player on any tennis surface to play for my life, I'd pick Nadal on clay. And I mean, you picked that along with a few other things. You made some bold predictions before the I French did. Open. I, th- I said, I think I said Stosa to make a semi final and and Songer to be a real dark horse and. Stosa made her say, oh, she should have won the tournament in the end. Mm. Songer had, I think it was four match points against Djokovic. Four yeah, or five. I think it was, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And I think you had, you had Ferrer as the smoke. Yes, that's, the, what, that's the other one, yeah. And um, he, oh, I mean, the fact that Nadal can beat him 6 2, 6 2, 6 1 basically shows what an absolute gun on Clay Nadal is because Ferrer. He is probably is at an extreme disadvantage because of the players against whom he's competing. But if he if he were around in an era where there weren't uh, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, I think Fe- uh, Ferrer would have won a few Grand Slams by now. Do you think it'd be fair to say the same about Andy Murray? Right, right player, wrong time. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing about another Andy. Actually, Andy Roddick. Yeah. 
who is one of my... I'm very happy to admit that when he lost that 09 Wimbledon final, as someone cheering for Federer, there were, there were tears rolling down the old Jackson face. William recognises what a momentous event that is. I probably cry maybe, you know, a couple of times a decade. But I remember after that match, uh, just thinking for Roddick, you just came up, peaked at the wrong time. Because in any other era, he would have won six or seven Grand Slams and he would have been talked about as, you know, one of the... Someone who's mentioned in the conversation of the all-time greats. But because he happened to peak at the same time as the three... You know, arguably the three greatest concurrent players of all time. He's been left in the dark. He's got one Grand Slam to his name and he won't add to that. Mm. And I think quite... Yeah, quite fitting to what we were saying is he played Ferrer in the, um, I think it was the third round at Wimbledon. He played a great set of tennis to win the first set, but then Ferrer just said, you know what, I'm just going to tough it out from the baseline. I'm going to stay in these rallies and I'm going to wait for you to make the mistake first, basically. And that's uh, what I really like about Ferrer is that it's all mental for him. Mm-hmm. I think he just he just stands there at the back of the court and says, "Unless you're one of the big three, I'm just I'm just going to wait you out." And he did that against Murray in the French. We made some pretty good predictions yep. so far this year. We, we had some stinkers as well. Yeah, yes. Oh, dude, Lance Franklin, thirteen, thirteen. Yeah, we couldn't believe Funny, it. Hutto. Yeah, we couldn't believe it at the time, Hutto. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Man. Yeah, all these co-commentators just still trying to get the semen out of their shoes right now. Having yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a go at him the day before he kicks 13, yeah. probably not a, not a high well, point. It wasn't our best timing, was no, it? <laughs> no. This podcast, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Uh, there's, a, there's a pretty big test series coming up between England and South Africa. Well, I've said to you already... This is the most excited I have ever been about a test series not involving Australia. Yeah, so we'll, we'll hang on for that in a minute. I'll, yep. I'm going to do a bit of a recap over the, the AFL, AFL season, season today. Yep. Yes, there's uh, been some interesting subplots and storylines so far this year. Yep. And I think we should uh, also cover the, uh, the Dream Team of Fantasy side of things, given that we've got our own fantasy competition. Which you keep reminding me the that I need pot? to do better in. Yeah, yeah, well, of course. It's because I'm handing your ass to you on a platter, mate. But, well, I mean that but one. But I, I was going to say, yeah, let's not talk about Dream Team. <laughs> Dream Team would be a completely different story. So, do you want to start with the cricket? Do you think that's a good place to start? Yeah, let's go. I mean, Alan Donald wrote, I mean, a surprisingly coherent article for a fast bowler. But, <laughs> no, I mean... He, um, I think Alan Donald's one of those smart fast bowlers. Though. Well, yeah. I mean, White Lightning... Yeah, brilliant player in his time. He did a very, very interesting article during the week previewing the the England versus South Africa series in terms of the fast bowlers on each side. And yeah. um, at the behest of uh, Mickey J, our, our English correspondent, one might say, <laughs> uh, I did some stats guru research this week. And the most interesting thing I found about Stain, Philander, Anderson, and Broad is that. Stain averages 34.05 against England, in England, during his career. Whereas against all other attacks, his average is in the, the low 20s. Mm. And his strike rate is, I think, oh, I think we said it was second only to Clary Glim- yeah, Grimmett. Yeah, his strike rate is yeah. impeccable. Yeah. Yeah. Anderson is another one whose average... I mean, he is one who suffered... His career stats yeah. suffer greatly from the fact that in 6 07, he was absolute cannon fodder to Punter and Huss and the yeah. rest of them. I think that you, with Anderson, you're really looking more at when he became the lead bowler yeah. in their team, which was really the last two or three years. Yeah. But when we look at the last three years, his average is about 26, hmm. which you'd say, you know, I mean, compared that's, to that's the McGrath and the Marshalls, yeah. it's not great, but compared to the fast bowlers in this day of um, batsman-dominated cricket, yeah. that's a very respectable average. And Stuart Broad is another one who has a very, very good record against India and Pakistan. But against Sri Lanka, Australia and South Africa He averages in the mid-30s So I think, to an extent, they all suffer from the fact They haven't played each other at their peak I mean, I know Staines I remember remember Staines' first test wicket Was an unplayable outswinger to Michael Vaughan Which clipped the top of off stump But his career stats against England are very poor Anderson and Broad are the same Their career stats against South Africa are, are very weak 
But this upcoming series, I don't think we've ever had such potent um, bowling attacks go head-to-head against each other. I mean, you think to be... We'd be the, going, the, the not end of Lily and... Um, I think it's probably fair to say not in our lifetimes. Oh, anyway. uh, yeah. I was going to say maybe the end of Lillian Thompson versus the beginning of the West Indies quicks. No, but not, probably I, not. No, yeah. It's, 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 I, I don't think there have ever been two such potent, wicket-taking test attacks going at... Yeah. I mean, my only comment about this series is that you wouldn't want to be an opening batsman in it. No. You, you've got Stain and Philander versus Anderson and Broad on English green tops in overcast conditions. Yeah. Yeah. You'd, you'd want to be batting seven. <laughs> yeah. yeah, hoping that you're coming in at around yeah. about the sixth to, to here isn't bowling well that day. That's, that's the only weak link you yeah. can really look at in both their bowling yeah. attacks. I mean, the the other interesting thing will be to see what impact Mark Boucher retirement's going to have on this series. I mean, this is this is a really really sad story. Yeah, I mean, for one of the great blokes of international cricket, he is. I mean, he is. I mean, I remember you said it in an email during the week. He's someone who's worth more than the sum of his parts, basically. Yeah. Who brings more to the side. Than just his his pure statistics and um, yeah, I, I mean, guess. He's, a lot like Ian Healy was. He's, he's the type of guy who he, he he very rarely makes a mistake behind the stumps. Yeah, as it is, and he makes tough runs. Yeah, like he doesn't. He I doesn't, mean, uh, he doesn't have the bread head and cash in when things oh, are good. For fuck's sake! Yeah, uh, let's just think back to the last England South Africa series. Which, which Boucher called, I think, the best innings of his life. He made 46 not out when they were chasing, uh, I think it was 350-odd, and, and I remember um, Smitty made about 151 not out. But Mark Boucher, in partnership with him, made 46 not out, and he described that as the best innings of his life because they beat England mm. in that series. And I think he is someone who... He's irreplaceable, basically. You, mm. you can't... You can't... Oh, I can't remember the guy. It's, there's a TS at the start. It's Tami Tosaliki is the guy um, who's going to replace him for, they reckon, the the second test onwards. They reckon AB will take the gloves for the first test. But in terms of the series overall, you'd have to say to have someone like uh, Tami Sokoliki. Yeah, Sokoliki. Tami Sokoliki. Tami Sokoliki. It's a bit like Sotobi, isn't it? Sosobi. Sosobi. His name is Sosobi, but we call him Sotobi because he broke his toe in that match against Australia previously. But, I mean, you'd have to look at him and think, geez, he's a guy who's played... I think three tests six years ago. Other than that, zero international experience mm. versus AB de Villiers. Who I mean, I have to say, AB de Villiers is where if I had to pick the best all-round fieldsman of all time, probably AB de Villiers versus Ponting. They'd both be up there. But I mean, to have AB as keeper while he's trying to bat at number five, and mm. is it number five? You bats? He bats four. Uh, yeah. Yeah, four or five. Four or five. I, remember, I think Callis. Yeah. Him and Callis yeah. kind of swap around. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, he's sort of in their middle order. You'd think oh, it's it is a massive loss, and I think it's in a series that's as sort of nip tuck as this one is going to be between England and South Africa. That might just be enough to sway things England's way. I mean, if we had to make a prediction right now, yeah, I'd say it's going to be one all mm-hmm. leading into English, the third test. English weather. Yeah. Playing a role? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say it's going to be one all leading into the third test yeah. because I think whoever gonna, whoever's going to lose the first test is going to get fired up and win the second test. At this stage, I would say England to win 2-1 purely because I just think in their home conditions with the fans behind them and, and everything like that, they're just a little bit better than South Africa. But as I say, it really it could come down... Uh, Alan Donald said it could come down to one dropped catch, yeah. one bad session, yeah. one yeah. Uh, sort of minor moment I mean, to I, turn this series. I'd think that, yeah, I'd, I'd go England's way for a couple of reasons. Yep. First one being they probably bat a little bit deeper than South Africa do. That's right. I mean, having Bresnan... Yeah. I think he just missed Gilly's record of winning his first 13 tests. Yeah. yeah. I think he is... Someone called him the 
the lucky mascot of the English side, and he took offence to that because he doesn't like being a mascot. But he did win twelve out of his first twelve tests. Yeah. But I look at him. I look at even even someone like Swan. Swan. Yeah. Edison. I mean, Ed, Edison bats eleven, and he can tie it in. Yeah. And there's no problems with that. And as you say, your attack's probably going to be Bresnan, Broad, and Swan alongside and Anderson, Anderson. Yeah. That's yeah. a deep team. That's yeah. a deep batting team. The other thing that I would say is, is that I think that they win the spin. The spin. To oh yeah, and uh, and that, as I was saying before, yeah. Imran Tahir is the most crucial player to this series because yeah. if he can step up, then South Africa are really in with a chance. But I think on paper, mm. man for man, yeah. Swan versus Tahir is the one obvious discrepancy where yeah. you look at it and say England are way in front. Well, you because might, and you might argue Pryor versus uh, Tosalecki. Oh right? yes, yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> Just Yeah. <laughs> well, but I mean, will give them run, yeah. runs. At you look at their batting too. attack. You look at um, Strauss versus Smith. I mean, I'd say the two best international captains of uh, captains of the modern era. Yeah. You look at Anderson and Broad and Bresnan versus Stain and Philander and Morkel. I mean, that's just mouthwatering, isn't yeah. it? That sort of matchup. Yeah, that's right. That's as I say, you you you'll never have two equally potent mm. fast bowling attacks go up against each other. But I just think, and uh, sorry to go on um, in terms of the middle order, mm. to have Peterson and Bell versus De Villiers and Callas. Yeah. That's uh, again could go either way, but I just think Swan versus Tahir. That's the one area. Where if you're coming down to the fifth day and a team's yeah. chasing 240 runs to win, if Swan's bowling at them, you'd pick the bowling side. If Tahir's bowling at them, you'd pick the batting yeah. side. Yeah, and I think that that's a... But yeah, as you say, it's certainly going to be a, a serious... Oh, I'm ball. looking forward to it so much. Well, I'm sure we were. I'm licking my chops in anticipation of this. Which is more than I can say about the Ashes series next year. Yes. Which is, I that think... Be... Uh, let's put it this way. The 4-0 result in the one-day series, I can very easily see that being repeated in the Ashes next year. Where do you think is going wrong? Well, if you were, it's if it's you the batsman. Yeah. It, it's just the batsman. I mean, as much as I like... Hussey is... I mean, him and Tug of War are probably my two most... Idolised cricketers of all time. But the fact is that Hussey right now should not be commanding a spot in the side mm. as well as he is, along with Ponting, if there were any sort of decent batsman coming up at state level. The fact yeah. is that if Kawaja had, had kicked on as well as he should have, he would be getting a game right now. Liam Davis would be getting a game right now. Even, even someone like Callum Ferguson... In the past, you'd be expecting that sort of uh, that depth of batting quality to be coming through at state level. Whereas right now, people talk about Australia and go, "Oh, well, Ponting and Hussey are still getting a game." And I sit there and go, "Well, who would you pick ahead of them?" Well, I mean, it, it, that's right. And the argument that I have is, is that the, the guys that are in there aren't necessarily doing the job. I mean, let's not talk about George Bailey and Peter Forrest, but in the one no, eighteen, no. well, that's not. But the guys, the guys who are in the, even in the test team, the guys in the test team aren't necessarily doing the job either. I mean, the last series against the West Indies, none of them made a century. I, no, I remember saying in the series against India, if, if of Ponting and Hussey, if one of them gets injured and one of them is out of form, what do we do? Yeah. What do we do? Kawaja will get a game, but mm. then who do we pick next? Who is the next in line? I reckon... Uh, uh, Ferguson? I, I've said this I mean, before. I'd Quiney? Clinger? I'd, I'd take the punts on the guy who just got punted from the central... From the, from the oh, academy. Oh, Mitch Marsh. Mitch yeah. Marsh. Yeah. But, I mean, you look at that and you go... But his form I, uh, doesn't suggest that... The, the fact that Quiney and Klinger... Yeah. Are pro- I mean, I would I would pick Quiney over anyone else right now, probably. On current yeah. form, yeah. I would say Rob Quiney is probably like the 13th man. For the bag of green right now, and that is a sad indictment of our batting stocks. I mean, at I, state level, they've got to ask a lot of hard questions. I, I think that if if you're looking at it realistically, you know, they they would probably say it's Phil Hughes, which scares me oh, even more. Jesus but, um, Christ! I would pick Cadditch over Phil Hughes, but the point easily, yeah, the, easily. The point that I guess I'm, I'm about to make is that they've got this conundrum with Shane Watson. 
They're not quite sure exactly. Should be batting six. Yeah, absolutely. He should be batting. He is a bowling all rounder. It's as simple as that. The fact that they are talking about picking him at number three, I think we've discussed this on a previous podcast. He can't bat for four hours. Number three is traditionally your strongest batsman. And I think. Reed Don Bradman, Reed Ricky Ponting, Reed David Boone. I mean, these guys Rubble who are... Driving. Yeah, exactly. Who, the, 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 the tradition is you pick your best batsman to come in at one down yeah. who can bat when you're none for 200 or bat when you're none for one in the first over. Yeah. Or none for none in the first over, I should say. Yeah. The guy who can come in anywhere from overs 1 to 80 and play any attack well, the fact that Shane Watson, who has hit, I think, two test centuries in his career... Mm. Is our best choice at number three, and I mean the thing that's that not I, good. I, I'd rather have him in a counter attack mode anyway. Yeah, he can't bat for more than four hours, but if you're betting at number six, exactly that's the point. And particularly destroying, destroying an opposition for four hours, particularly if they're they're like four uh, for four hundred and fifty at the time. And I was going to say, particularly when you've got Huss coming in at five who is possibly the best batsman with the tail that we have ever seen. Yeah. I mean, the, fa- the, fa- the fact that he can score a century with McGrath as a partner, I mean, he can do anything with the tail. But if we've, we've got... With Stuart McGill as well, which is yeah. probably even more important. And I was going to say, <laughs> but if we've got him at number five, who can marshal the tail and, and, you know, add an extra 200 runs just doing nothing but batting sensibly, mm. with then Watson at number six who can come in and say, as, you, as you're saying, if we're four for a few hundred, I'm going to come in and I'm just going to smack the shit out of you and take the game away from you, versus if we're four for 40, I can come in and I can stick around for a 60-odd. I, I love that attack. Whereas now, I mean, Matthew Way, as much as he's is much better than Brad Haddon, I, I just don't think he's the sort of guy that you would want to put your well, house see, on coming in at four for not yeah. much. Well, that's the thing. Like, I, I think that that's why they're so high on Tim Payne, and it's understandable when you watch yeah. Tim Payne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, if you had Watson coming in at six and Payne coming behind him at seven, you're kind of getting yeah. the best of both worlds, yeah. I think, is that Payne can hold up and end. Yeah. So if Watson goes and goes cheap, Trying to counter attack, but I, and I think the you best know, thing I mean, about Watson was... is he has that mindset too. Yeah. He's going to come out, yeah. and he's going to he, he's going to take you for runs if he's if he yeah. gets his eye in. Yeah. He's going to hit sixty or seventy odd, yeah. and he's going to take the game away from you very quickly. Whereas I don't think anyone else. I mean, looking at guys like yeah Peter Forrest and George Bailey, and then. Even so, I mean, Callum Ferguson and these sorts of guys. Do you, do you think that they're trolling these guys potentially for a number three spot? I think they are, and that's what actually worries I mean, me. Yeah. Because I don't think they're born to be number three. Which raises, a, which raises I, I guess, another question. Should the should the skipper be just taking the ball? Oh, no, ab- absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind. Michael Clark should have been batting at number three for a couple of years now. As, in my opinion, I mean, we just talked about the fact that, in theory, your best batsman bats at number three. Mm. Michael Clark should have been batting there for a few years. And I know his test record at number four was shit house. Yeah. I think he's hit he's hit one fifty there and he averages high teens mm. at number four versus at number five his average is in the fifties. Yeah. There is no there is no reason in my mind to not have him coming in at number three right now. Mm. He is our best batsman. And he needs to bat at number three. Yeah, they're not going to achieve anything by putting Ponting there or Hussey there, which would be short term. Uh, I mean, if if you're going to do that with Huss, I'd have him, I'd have him open yeah. and have Watson at six. That yeah. is that is the adjustment that I'd do, and that's only if Cowan and Warner aren't playing. Because at the moment, Cowan and Warner are the openers. Yeah. If you've got that attack, then Clark at three, Ponting at four, Hussey at five, Watson at six, mm. and that would be my my batting lineup right now for the next Ashes. But at this stage, they're more likely to bat Ponting at three, mm. where he's going to get undone. Hussey, well, I mean, at this stage, well, I don't know what they're going to do. Would well, they play Hussey Watson at four? Probably, yeah. I mean, they, they Hussey, see, at, they Hussey see, at six and Clark at five. They see locked in Clark five, Hussey yeah, at six, don't yeah. they? Um, which, yeah, surprising. I mean, I, I would, uh, my take on it is... Yeah, Watson at six. I'd even contemplate if you had Payne in the team swapping Payne and Watson. Oh, I mean, uh, Tim Payne would be a... A walk-up yeah. start for me, ahead yeah. of Wade or Haddon. Yeah. 
I mean, that's sort of knock on Wade. Wade's done a pretty good job. But he's but just not a test batsman. No. He's the he's a 50-over yeah. guy. And he's a, he's a very good one-day batsman. Mm. And, I mean, to give him his credit, to give him his due, he has come in and he's done everything that's asked of him yeah, so absolutely. far in all three forms of the game. Mm-hmm. We've had an out um, with the, uh, well, the incident that's gone on in his family life. Yeah. Wayne has come in and done everything that's asked of him. Mm. Similar to sort of James Patterson. But, again, with Pattinson, I wouldn't pick him in my top 11. Mm. It'd be Harris, Hilfie and Siddle. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an interesting... They've got an interesting little dilemma there. As I say, it's a, it's a real concern for me, and you've, you've highlighted it, is that the bowling cupboard is well and truly full at this particular oh, yeah. point I in mean, time. Mitchell Johnson's not getting within shouting distance of the test side right now. Which can only be good for and everybody. With, with good reason. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, he well and truly blew his last chance, which was uh, the one-day series. He shot his load. Yeah. <laughs> the concern is, is that, you know, the, is it that the bowling's too dominant or is it that the batting's not working to your advantage? I think that the thing that, that I'm really glad to see Kawaja leaving New South, South Wales and going yeah. to Queensland, because I think that he'll, he'll be getting forced to bat on condition in conditions that, like aren't, the yeah, that yeah. aren't as suitable yeah. to his game as perhaps the conditions that he would have faced. So, I mean... In terms of discounts, I think that the degree of difficulty in making runs in, in the Gabba and also in Hobart versus a lot of the other states at the moment, it's yeah. much more difficult. Oh, I mean, if, if you play for South Australia these days, you should yeah. be averaging 60. Yeah. It's that simple. When you're batting at the Adelaide Oval every second match. So, and then that's the type of thing that works against a clinger, I think, is that yeah. the, he doesn't have... And even a pif- Ferguson. Yeah. The pure volume as such, and well, I think you know, Fer- I think Ferguson's ended up staying in South Australia, but he was looking at going to a couple of other places, probably for that very reason. So, so GJ, round sixteen of the AFL, Sweet Sixteen, episode sixteen of our podcast, the, the, it's circular. the start of like a line. A river. Yeah, let's 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 conduct a review of the AFL season today. Beautiful. How do you think they've gone? Who do you think is looking? Who do you think is looking good uh, for the premiership? And who do you think has underperformed so far this year? Let, let's maybe the season. Maybe. We'll work from the middle back yeah. out. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Asking me five questions at once and then trying right, to get me okay. to remember All which right, one uh, to go. Let, let's go yes. this one then. Yep. In terms of the season today, yep. How do you think? The, the teams at the top have performed and who do you think is going to win the flag? The team that has really impressed me the most this year is Collingwood for a number of reasons. I think that their game style is, is going to hold up strong in September. I think more importantly with Collingwood, the, the thing that's amazed me is how they've been able to cop all of these injuries yeah. and still maintain a reasonably consistent performance. Yeah. I think uh, West Coast and Collingwood, to me... I mean, you look at someone like Carlton, who yeah. lost two big players and suddenly said, oh, that's it, we're not going to make the finals now. Yeah. Versus West Coast and Collingwood, who have, who have copped injuries to key players and who are still basically competing to finish top of the ladder. Yeah. We'll know a lot more about Collingwood and the Eagles in particular. Their, their runs home aren't, aren't that good, no, really. No, not at all. So we're going to know a bit more about them. I mean, if you're asking me right now, I'm still reticent to completely write Geelong off, which sounds silly. But I'd the say... The team is locked in seventh place yeah. at the moment. What are they, like, a game clear of six, the game clear of eight? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not completely writing them off yet, but Hawthorne Collingwood look like the two to me. That doesn't... Well, there yeah. is. Uh, th- Which I think my call at the start of the season, I said, would play off in the, in the grand final. I, I haven't seen any... I haven't seen enough from... I, I think that the thing is... With Hawthorne, Hawthorne's percentage looks great. They've yeah. they've had a few cream puff games of late, yeah. which has really helped them, and it's allowed them to build their confidence up a fair bit, which is quite important for them. I mean, the other thing you'd say about Hawthorne is that when you're a Victorian side in the finals, you're always going to find it easier. I mean, you look yeah. if they finish fifth and they face a team like. Uh, you know, even someone like St Kilda or Fremantle in the in the first week of the finals, yeah. they're going to be through to a semi final easily. I don't think the Hawthorne will finish fifth though; they'll finish in the top four. the The reality is is that I still think Hawthorne's best is greater than everyone else's best. Even and Collingwood's, even Collingwood's. Mm, that's so a big call. That's a big I really, call. I really do believe that if you were saying that we've got to grand final day and every team's going to play at their absolute best on grand final day, 
the winner would be Hawthorne. Um, you, know, you know who I'd go? And it's a, it's a bit of an outsider. I would actually go West Coast. And, and I mean, that's, yeah. that's very surprising. But I think if you look at their side right now, the fact that they've been able to sort so of take might... in their stride, the fact that their three highest goal kickers from last season aren't playing, mm. the fact that they're still... I mean, if they win tomorrow, they'll be top of the ladder. See, the only reason why I, I'm not putting the Eagles forward is on, I, I've seen their run home, I know their run home, I don't think they're going to finish top two, and I really feel that they have to finish top two in order to get to the grand final. I can't see them beating a Hawthorne or a Collingwood in, in Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah, and see, that's what I say about, about Hawthorne, is that if they finish fifth, say, they'll play a St Kilda or a Carlton or Fremantle or yeah. North Melbourne in the first round, they'll win that. And then you can't tell me that anyone who's finished third or fourth, which at this stage probably, I mean, you'd say it looks like being probably Adelaide and West Coast. I would, would think, you say? I would, based on based on looking at the schedule, I would say that the Eagles will probably finish maybe third or fourth. Yeah, I would say that I'm expecting. Hawthorne, yeah. Adelaide, if you say Adelaide, Adelaide, Adelaide or West Coast finish yeah. third or fourth, I mean, if they play Hawthorne in the second week, I'd pick Hawthorne to win that game. I, I could, yeah, I could honestly see, I could see Adelaide finish top. Their run home, their run wow. home is so soft compared to everyone mm. else's. They've um, they get free points on the way. They're, they're the only team well, up around that Gold Coast and GWS twice. That's they're exactly right, more, don't they? That's yeah. exactly right. They're, the toughest game I think that Adelaide have coming home is, is they West have Coast. the Eagles at home yep. next week, and we get without Shuey or Lynch. Well, oh, no, Lynch, yeah, but without Sh- sorry Shuey or Waters. Yep. Yeah, I think that you know we'll know a lot about Adelaide. Adelaide have kind of lulled a little bit, but. Look, I, but they've been able to. I guess we, we talked about bold predictions and good predictions at the start of the year. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking pretty good Your with call. my Adelaide yeah. call. And my Adelaide call was on the strength of the draw, but also the strength of what I'd been hearing Sanderson say, which is that, you know, contested footy wins your games. And it does. Oh, and I think not only that, but the fact is with these interstate teams, you're going to win 11 games a year if you're a good side. Yeah, you win ten. You yeah. win ten at home, yeah. no matter what. Exactly. No, but it, the, the, but with Adelaide, you'd say because they're playing Port twice. Yeah, I'd, I'd bump that up to eleven. Yeah, the degree of difficulty for an interstate team is there's there's elements of it that are high and low. If you're a good interstate team, you probably win. You probably win maybe five of your ten games on the road, five or more, but generally five. You're going to have two two or three games yeah, a year. You'll, you'll play your Hawthorns and your Collingers with yeah. G, and you'll lose. Them. You just have you just have a game where you, against an opposition that you should ex, you, you'll be expected to beat that you're off the boil a little bit. So West Coast against Brisbane, for instance, that type of game, or well, Adelaide's was North Melbourne. Yeah, you know, you have a game where you you you're like three or four percent not switched on, and it hurts you. So you, you you crap the bed once in a game that you probably shouldn't do. Yeah. You you'll have struggles against good teams, and a good team will probably blow you out somewhere along the line. Hawthorne against Sydney. That will happen. Yeah. As a as a travelling team, but as you say, you should win ten at home, ten of your twelve at home. Yeah. In reality, that means that as a result of that, you're you're right up there. I think this year you're probably to finish top two. You're probably going to need eighteen wins and a pretty good percentage. So, yeah, I mean, that's the, so the I mean, era of the expansion, the yeah. two expansion clubs in the league, is you're going to get at least two games a year where you should be winning with 150%. But last year, I felt that there was a, there's a big divide. There was... Oh, there the was, top four. There was a top, there was a top, top well, five, there's a top maybe. three, really. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a top three. I think this year it's a top five. Yeah. I would pro and as I've said, I would probably... So I'm the, still waiting to see with Geelong. I, I'm reticent to completely write them out outside of that top five. So, so in terms, terms of five, are we talking Collingwood, Adelaide, Sydney, West Coast and Hawthorne? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the top five on the ladder at the moment, which are those five? Yeah. And I would still bracket Geelong, but... So no Essendon? I'm not convinced with Essendon. No? Um, Do you think they'd... Advantage uh, they benefit from having so many games at the dome. Yeah, I think they're a year away. I think that 
we talk about injuries. I mean, their injuries in terms of length haven't been quite as long as, mm. say, Collingwood's and the Eagles had. Well, they, really, they've only had Winderlick out for like an extended period of time, haven't they? But they, the thing that worries me about Essendon is how many soft tissue injuries they've had this year. It's insane. Isn't that tantamount And, to and you know, Brian Taylor's friend, the weapon. The weapon <laughs> needs to be taken out of back and shot because <laughs> it's his responsibility. Get the out. Yeah. Get the jukes out indeed. Good <laughs> one, Lee, Thanks for that. Uh, yeah, I mean, they've had so many soft tissue injuries. You have to you have to wonder what's going on with their strength and conditioning. And with that as well, I suspect that they might rein back a little bit the the intensity, which yep. could which could we could see the results in their performance waver quite significantly as a consequence of that as well. Yeah, I, I think that you know Essendon have been kind of benefited. They've had a few lucky I, wins. I, the, the other thing about Essendon is that I think they're the only team who don't play GWS or Gold Coast in the run home. So they've got a, a, like a tough run from here on in, whereas the all the other teams don't. will have at least one. Soft, oh, the Eagles don't? Yeah. No. But I mean, all the other teams you look at, yeah. I think they've got at least one sort of soft game ahead mm. of them. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, as I say, I just think... Well, I know that they've got a they've got a pretty tough back into the draw as well. Can so I just... they'll probably... They'll probably they're, I think they're six at the moment. That's yeah, probably, they are. That's yep. probably about where they'll stay. Can I just say that one other question I have this year with the with the fixture, have you noticed the number of teams who've had tough runs in a row? Like Hawthorne at the yeah. start of the year, I think to had Geelong, Collingwood, West Coast, and Sydney in the first five rounds. Richmond, I think Carlton coming up, yeah. and in their recent rounds, they've got Collingwood, Hawthorne. And West Coast, it, like in succession, West Coast at the end of the year, I think have, or they've got Sydney and Adelaide now, but I think they've got Geelong, we, one yeah. other, and Collingwood Geelong, at the end Geelong, of the year. Collingwood, Geelong, Collingwood, and Hawthorne. And in their Hawthorne, last yeah, weeks. that's right. Yeah, yeah. What, what's going on there with the fixturing? Well, I just think that that's a that's a broader representation of how even the league is this year. Yeah, is that you're seeing you're but, seeing these runs where you, you sit there and you go. There's in terms no of the top five last year, yeah. we had Collingwood, Geelong, Hawthorne, West Coast, and Carlton. Yeah, and all five of those teams seem to have hit those four opponents in one stretch this season. Yeah, it's and I mean Collingwood. I mean, Collingwood have the benefit of 18 games of the MCG, but they got, in terms of the five teams that they have to play twice, they really got the arts end of the deal there. You know, they got. You never thought you'd say that about Collingwood either. No, well. But, you know, I mean, they, Mind you, they playing got, Sydney at ANZ Stadium yeah. may as well be a home game. But, I mean, they, <laughs> they got. You know, they got the Eagles, they got they got Geelong and they got Hawthorne, as yep. well as Essendon and Carlton. I don't think any other teams had a, had the five tough double-ups. Oh, well, maybe not the double-ups, but the fact that in the first five rounds, Hawthorne had West, West Coast, Sydney, Collingwood and Geelong. Well, I think that's Richmond, a ridiculously tough Richmond start. had a very similar draw. Yeah? I think, Richmond's top, I think Richmond's first five weeks, uh, it was amazing how tough their draw was to start the year as well. They did have Geelong, West Coast and Collingwood in there. Yeah. And, and Carlton, Carlton in round one, yeah. yeah. So yeah. They, they, haven't, and they had Collingwood too from memory. I think you might have said Didn't Collingwood. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, Carl, I remember yeah, they had, had Carlton, Collingwood, West Coast and Hawthorne. They had, yeah, from remember they had Carlton round one, Collingwood no, round yeah. Carlton round one, Collingwood round two. They had Geelong. Yeah. They had West Geelong. Coast round four, I think. Yeah. And Geelong. Yeah, at, they had Geelong at, at, at Geelong. Um, Cardinia yeah. Park. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. whatever it's called these days. No, we're calling it Cardinia Park. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, yeah it's just like it's Subiaco Oval, not Patterson Stadium. I think that there's six, te- there's six teams that I could realistically think can win it. And you'd never, you never wouldn't I was have said a, that in previous years, would you? If I was, yeah, if I was a betting person, my money would be on one of those, one of the two Melbourne clubs that's up the top. To give some credence, the Hawthorne Collingwood Grand Final pick at the start of the year, yeah, that's good is still looking good. I, I, if, yeah, if you're, I think me, you said Hawthorne Geelong, didn't you? I said Hawthorne Geelong, and I was, I was toying between Geelong and Collingwood, and my comment about. Collingwood was, I wasn't certain that they could sustain all the blows that they had with injury-wise. And the interesting thing is they're suspecting that Andrew Cracker might be back playing in a couple of oh, weeks. But yeah, but they're saying that Mark Lacroix might be back playing before the end of the year. I, 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 I wouldn't see. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that Cracker and Lacroix are at different stages of their careers, though. You know, Cracker being 30 years old, they're probably more likely to take a risk with him. 
it, it, they're rolling the dice. Well, it's more that Cracker, would, Cracker left, would many want years to, left. It's more that Cracker yeah. would want to roll the dice, whereas I think with Lacroix, if if the Eagles are seriously contemplating playing him, that's it's, crazy. It's talk. a bad idea. Yeah. Everyone I mean, the, the only thing I would say, if we make a granny, perhaps then, yeah. just just almost to throw him out, sort of like what they did with Buddy in 2008, to throw him out there and just attract Matthew Scarlett mm. to benefit from what's around him. Maybe throw Lecrae out there to say, you know what, Josh Kennedy's then going to get the second best defender and he can tail him up. Mm. But other than that, in terms of timing well, guy, and opponents, there's no way Lecrae should be playing this year. Kennedy wouldn't be the guy that would see the advantage. The guy who you'd see... It would, oh, someone be, like Lynch. No, it would actually be Jack Darling. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because oh, all, Lynch of sudden, Darling, yeah. all of a sudden, he would be getting probably the fourth best yeah. defender. I mean, it's sort of the same reason why Daniel Kerr went from being such a highly rated player to suddenly ridiculously overrated in 2007 mm. uh, to 2008 sorry is because well hang on he was getting the third best tagger in previous years now he's getting the top tagger yeah that was answering your first question I think yeah, the disappointments well I guess yeah the other one was sort of who has underperformed this year and do you oh. think there are massive areas for improvement in any one team and I think the, the team that instantly springs to mind for me is probably Carlton any discussion of disappointments Kind of begins and ends with Carlton. I, I would have, I, I've always felt Carlton were overrated anyway. Yeah. But at the same time, I wouldn't have thought that they would be on the fringes of missing the eight. I'd say that Geelong are probably another one who mm. who have yeah. probably underperformed relative to what you'd expect. They're, they're really missing Travis Varco, which surprises me. And, I mean, as we discussed at the start of the year, Brad Ottens. Well, yeah, I said Ottens was going to be a big loss, and Cameron Ling as well, because a few midfielders have got off the chain a little bit against Geelong too. Yeah. I mean, the biggest yeah. thing, for the biggest surprise for me this year has been their contested possession. So I, yeah. think, I think they lost the contested possession stats in their first eight games of the season, I believe. Yeah. Well, under the, the David King special oh, formula, Jesus. they're the... They're the, they, they have twice beaten teams, losing contested possessions, losing yep. disposal efficiency, and losing tackles. And one of them was Richmond. One was at, Richmond at, and one at, was Hawthorne. Skilled, yep. yeah. Oh, yeah, and that Hawthorne, I mean, Hawthorne, yeah. that's because they've got a gorilla on their back about. But um, I think, you know, the interesting thing about Geelong is it stands, I mean, I, as I say, I'm not completely writing them off because they look done at a similar time last year as well and they'd managed, and they to, win fresh, the flag. Yeah, they'd managed <laughs> to freshen everybody up and win the yeah. flag although I think a big part of that was having the bye in the preliminary final they managed to freshen their guys up but the thing is is that they got their, their core guys are looking old this year yeah yeah, absolutely. And your, your Joel Corey's, yeah, your even your Corey's, your Bartels, yeah, yeah. your Enrys, your Scarlets. Bartels, yeah. These guys, it's it's finally seems it looks like it's finally caught up with them. Well, I think someone said at the start of the year, you can only go to the well so many times. Yeah, that's right. And I think Geelong had uh, sort of wound back the clock and proved the critics wrong last mm. year. I think this year, time has, has really caught up. Yeah, it's, um, but, I mean, it's, it's incredibly rare for a team to be up and around the mark for five years, which was what they were. Well, in the way that they got Melbourne, Collingwood and Brisbane in the history. Yeah. I mean, Brisbane and... Uh, sorry, Melbourne and Collingwood won four in a row. Brisbane won three yeah. in a row. But can we, not, can we not count anything before like, 1987? <laughs> because it's kind of irrelevant. Of the draft? Well, yeah, it's all kind of irrelevant and with regards cap, to things yeah. like that. It's... You know, the, the league really started when the salary cap and the draft came in and, and were, you know, locked in stone, which was around the same time that the interstate clubs were coming into the league. It's really important that people make that distinction because teams like Carlton have, you know, they've won lots and lots of premiership. Oh, the Robert Walls era. That's exactly yeah. right. Robert Walls calls himself a premiership coach because... He had twice as much money yeah. to spend than anyone else. That's exactly yeah. right. It was a you know it's a different league where the way that you maintained a competitive advantage was buying the best interstate yeah. players. It's not that that model no longer exists. Yeah. Some of the clubs have struggled to adapt to to situations. I mean, you look at Carlton. Carlton still kind of want to try and operate under that model. They got their hands slapped once. Yeah. Sent him, sent him back seven or eight years. Now they're getting busy to line <laughs> people's pockets. Yeah. It's, well, I was going to yeah. say, I mean, the fact that blokes like Polly Farmer and Barry Cable mm. are not are not West Australian players. I mean, had there been a West West Australian team in those days, yeah. blokes like that would have been playing two hundred games for WA. Instead, they well, were playing games for North Melbourne and. Well, I mean, the thing, and that, those the thing that always amazes me is like. 
I've got to say this. What's the difference between a puppy and a Victorian media personality? I do not know. After after about three weeks, the puppy stops whining. <laughs> uh, the thing that I, I get really annoyed when people say that there were guys that weren't any good because they didn't play VFL football at I that stage that. back there. Somebody like Polly Farmer, like Barry Cable, all these guys have to go over there and get credibility in order to be perceived as a great footballer. I mean, Polly Farmer, you could make the case for him being the greatest footballer of all time. Yeah, Victorians wouldn't like you saying that, but yes, you yeah, could very much absolutely. make that argument. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he won. He played at three clubs and he won premierships at every single one of them. Yeah. But, you know, there was a guy who played in the in the early 1980s here in Western Australia called Stephen Michael. Now, everybody goes on about how good Adam Goods is and Adam Goods has won two Brownlows, but Adam Goods is at best 75% oh, yeah. of the players Stephen Michael yeah. was. And I will say that till the day I die. Yeah. He, Stephen Michael was a freak and... You know, I'm sure South Australian people would say the same thing about guys like Barry Robber and Russell Ebert. There's there's guys who played in these leagues that would compete no matter what. Yeah. I mean, Stephen, Stephen Michael won Simpson medals in WA Victoria State of Origin games. Mm. The guy could seriously play. But it was lack of opportunity. It, it's, yeah. it was, it's almost like... Well, the, he didn't want to go over there. Right, and it's almost like the Graham Pollock of, of AFL, yeah. isn't it? yeah. But, I mean, yeah, to, to discredit what those guys did purely because of where they were playing at the time, it's it's silly. Okay, the Victorian League might have been 5%. Oh, big, deal, big fucking deal yeah. because it was the VFL instead of the if AFL. If you're a super, break. You know, if, if it's 5% better, so what? A superstar is a superstar. Yeah. And that's just how it is. So, but I guess we're kind of distracting from the question. I've gone off on a pretty <laughs> massive tangent there. But, but it's, been, Carl, it, it's been entertaining. Carl, <laughs> I, I mean, I'd be shocked if Brett Ratton's coaching Carlton next year. Oh, I mean, do you think Malthouse will come up, or do you think it's it's someone like... You look, don't you look around and you Carlton, think there's guys like Rodney Ede and oh, even those sorts of guys come who, on, who could get a, a senior coach. We're, we're talking about Carlton. Carlton will go for the highest profile coach that they can afford. Mm. It's their history. I mean, it works so well with them with Dennis Pagan. But Carlton, well, in fairness, Pagan probably did as much as he could have with that. Yeah, list. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, but I'm just saying that's Carlton's yeah, strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Is yeah. that we're going to throw big bucks at the best guy that we can possibly get? So, so do you whilst think I Malthouse think, or Ruse, or whilst I like think, that? yeah, I would, I would suspect that Malthouse and Ruse are their definite targets, but. I wouldn't be surprised if they were potentially targeting somebody who's already coaching somewhere else. They'll go for the biggest fish that they can land. Would you say, all right, I'm going to throw out, say, three names here. Oh, one of them's probably not in, but say Mark Williams, Neil Craig, Rodney Ede, all guys who are sort of in a director of coaching style role at other clubs. Would you say that they're going to be entertaining that prospect? No, I think that they'll want a big... I don't see... The thing is... Okay, Williams has won a premiership. Williams is clearly going to be coaching GWS. Oh yeah, he's coaching them now. Yeah, really. He's one. He was the one of the three. I I would argue that you know quite possibly, and and I'm going to throw one in from way left field. Kevin Sheedy. Wow, he's actually had a contract at GWS. Is he? I thought he had one more year. No, he's had a contract at GWS. So he's not in Israel for now. So (laughs) I'm just you know if you can't you do. if you, you're going to... Rep- due diligence. Um, yeah, that, due you diligence. do that too. Yep. Yeah. You do that, you sound out whoever you possibly can and see who's available and who's not available and try and do your best to, to land the biggest fish. Well, now, I, I would look I, at someone like Mark Harvey and say he should get a senior coaching gig in the years oh, to come. Wouldn't you say? No. You, you think he's, he, you think see, he's I mean, playing second fiddle to Michael Watts? Here's the perspective that I guess here's my answer to, to your question. There's what Carlton will do and what Carlton should, should do. do. Yeah. And I think that there's two very, very different things. If I'm Carlton, I actually go after somebody like a Leon Cameron who's worked under... Is two he of, at Hawthorne now, I think? I think he's, he's back at Hawthorne. I think yeah. he's at Hawthorne. Yeah. He's been to a couple of different clubs. He, they thought he was going to get the doggies gig. They did, yes. Yeah. But I would go for somebody like that. I'd go if it's a bit of a punt. So, so I think Sumich... That sort of... He's another possible... Do you mean the, like the young, sort of the young up-and-comers sort of thing? I, I'd the go established for, ones? Yeah, I, I just think that Malthouse is an obvious answer, but he's... You know, Malthouse is very, very good at taking over teams that are at the uh, at or near that. Their window's open. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if Carlton's window's open. 
Uh, but the fact that the extent to which injuries have crippled them this year, you'd have to say it's probably not. Yeah, uh, the argument that Good I'd make is... can overcome their injuries. The argument I'd make is Carlton's window... For Carlton's window to be open, they're going to have to be incredibly active during the trade period. Because And, and the only reason why you'd say their window's open is Chris Judd's probably got two or three years left max. Yeah. And they, oh, need, yeah. To, so, I mean, and they need to capitalise on that while he's still there. And I mean, I mean, they really. Oh, I mean, we talk about the trade between Judd and Kennedy. Mm. I think they'd give any, anything to have Kennedy back right now. Yeah, he's. I mean, that's the thing. Well, without Car- the injury, the injury, obviously. If the Carlton playing staff were truly dedicated to winning, they would all take a, a twenty to fifty grand pay cut, and they would throw everything at Travis Cloak. It's not necessarily Do you that Travis Cloak is that. This is another thing we have to discuss. Though I, I think talk, he is one of the most overrated players in the league. I'm going to talk a bit. Yeah, in terms of output, he is. Yeah. In terms of structure, he's very important. So you think, think about it. He's like a Rowan Jones. Yeah. Travis Cloak very rarely gets outmarked. I think that that's the yep. most important thing to do. You think about all the small forwards that Carlton have in their team. If they're feeding off of a consistent contest... So a Betts, a Yaron, a Gala, yeah, yeah. with Cloak at their... A, a Walker. Standing, yeah, these those guys at their feet. Feeding off of a consistent yeah. contest at half forward, they would become a hell of a lot more potent. Yeah. Uh, a bit like, really, the way the Eagles used to feed off Lynch. Yeah. 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 I just think that that's the... He'll give you a solid contest. Yeah. You know, and he might... He'll bring the ball to ground. Yeah, he'll bring the, he, yeah, he'll bring the ball to ground because he won't, he won't get beaten very often. And I think that that's really important. He doesn't give you, perhaps, the output that you want. Paying him a million bucks is... Yeah, see, that's insane. ridiculous. He's not that good. Talk that. But 700000 he's worth 700000 In I this think. day and age, In yeah. this day and age, he's worth... He's worth being a top 30 paid player, but he's not worth a top 10. Yeah. And I think that that's an important distinction. So I think that he would make them uh, a far better team. I mean, all you've got to do is the team has performed badly. So, But a guy who has really surprised me this year, Mitch Clark at Melbourne. Yes. I mean, Dennis Cometti said that a game earlier on in the year was probably the best game he'd ever seen from a key forward. I just think that that's the... Just putting it into perspective, Mitch Clark... Melbourne are a rabble, but they they look like they're working (laughs) their way through it now a little bit more. As long as they keep Neils. Yeah, exactly. They've got to stay the course with Mark Neils. I think I've said that in a previous podcast where I outlaid what Melbourne needed to do. But Mitch Clark gives you that focal point. You can build around guys like that. And I think that that's the important thing. That's the guy that Carlton doesn't have. And as you said, if they'd kept Kennedy, they would have that player. And more to the point, if they'd kept Kennedy and Murphy was fit, for the year, mm. you know, folks like, uh, as a fact, you know, yeah. uh, even um, someone like Carazzo, mm. you'd have Murphy, Carazzo, Simpson running around, mm. delivering the ball to Kennedy. Yeah. You can't tell me that doesn't ma- make and it you'd have, I mean, putting it into perspective, when you take the trade into account, you'd have Chris Marston running around for, for Carlton as well yep. in that model. They might have gone a different way, but Marston was picked with that pick. Oh, they might have gone with Patrick Dangerfield, for instance. Yeah, he was number seven, he was pick three. Yeah, very So, yeah, they might have gone with a Patrick Dangerfield, for instance, with pick three in yeah. that draft. So they might have had a different view. The blogs are basically coming to fruition now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Is that you, you'd have that midfielder who's been in the system four to five years. Yeah. As you say, working alongside Kennedy and what they already had there. And, yeah, a very... They need to keep forward. I mean, Jared Waite is their best forward right now. Jared Waite probably hasn't played 10 games in a season for like five years now. So if you're building your entire... And this is part of the issue with Carlton. If you're building your entire philosophy around saying, oh, we'll be better when Jared Waite comes around, you're dreaming. Yeah. You know? It's not going to happen. Yeah, it's... The, it, it doesn't work like that. And it's crazy, their their strategy, though. They, it, it was crazy with Carlton and Carlton Structure. They had four quality ruckmen on their list two years ago. Is that Cruiser, Warnock, Hampson and... And Sam Jacobs. Yep. They've arguably let their best ruckman go in but Sam he's Jacobs. He's Adelaide now, isn't he? He's at Adelaide. Yep. I actually think that Warnock is a very good tap ruckman. He's one of the better tap ruckmen going around. But he can't get a game ahead of Cruiser and Hampson at the moment. I'm not convinced that Cruiser is as oh, good as Cruiser is said. very overrated. Oh, he's I think. probably... I, I think I've said before he's the most overrated player in the yeah. NFL. I mean, you look at someone like Nanui and Cox, in terms of their... 
just based on their mm. ruck work alone, yeah. a cruiser can't hold a candle to them. Cruiser can run forward and kick a couple of goals, but, but in like, terms of his ruck work, yeah. there's, there, he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't. Well, no, I mean, it, it was and it was proven right. over here in the Eagles Carlton game a couple yeah. of weeks ago yeah. when Natanui and Cox just dominated the air. I think Natanui got 143 yeah. dream team points that yeah. week. 139, yeah, yeah, something like that. It's, they have all of these ruckmen. There was. All these teams that really lacking Ruckman at that yeah. particular Key point tools. in time. Knock, they apparently knocked down a trade to Port Adelaide two or three years ago, pick nine for Sean Hampson. Sean Hampson's a could decent have, player, but he's not a pick nine. He's a good average player, yeah. as they say. Like, the problem is is that they have... That, you know, they're having these four Ruckman, but they had no key forwards. And they're kind of still at that, that stage. They're kind of trying to shoehorn Why is it Hanson so? They need or, Kennedy. Yeah. They need someone like that up forward. They need a focal point. Well, that's why, and that's why I'm saying Travis Clark makes so much sense to them. Whether they'll do is another thing. So, as I said, Carlton and Geelong are probably the ones who, who surprised me. I'm trying to think of others off the top of my head. Maybe Melbourne I would have expected a little bit more off to this point in time. But yeah, I would say I Fremantle see, or another one. I can see where they are. Fremantle, I think Fremantle should have won more games at home this year. Yeah. They've been very good on the road, but they've yeah. lost games against Essendon and Adelaide and Carlton at home that at the yeah. start of the year you would have expected them to win. Yeah, Fremantle, I mean, Fremantle have been what I thought they were, which was incredibly inconsistent as they're learning under the new game coach. Plan. Yeah. Yep. You know, I, I, I was expecting them to do enough to crawl into the bottom end of the eight, which they may still well do. Oh, I don't think so. But I think that it's going to be a, a mm. big, big stretch for them to do that. The, the benefits that you see with someone like Lyon are probably, you know, one or two years further down the line. They've got a lot of crap on their list that they still have to filter out. The problem for me is that one or two years from now, will Pavlich and Sanderlands be viable options? Well, I mean, I think that Sanderlands isn't a viable option probably this year, next year. He's probably got only... You know, I always say Greg about his trade back. Well, I don't know what you, I don't think you'd get too much for him. That's the scary thing. Oh, really? The guy, the the I think there are teams out there that would give the left testicle to have Sandland. His, his well, Pavlich, <laughs> I think that there would be there'd definitely mm, be a market yeah. because not only is he still performing at a pretty high level, he's proven to be incredibly durable over the, yeah. over the journey. How many well. games he missed for injury? Probably one yeah. or two a year. You could probably I would say probably yeah. maybe ten or fifteen over his yeah. career. Sandlin's the thing about him is is that Sam, when he goes down, he goes down hard. Well, when you have when you're a tall a taller player, and you see this, you know, I follow the basketball. So taller players, when their wheels, i.e., their ankles and their and their feet start to go, is well and truly the beginning of the end. And he's had so many problems with his feet over the last couple of years that yeah. I really don't think he's got much left. And I think that other clubs would think in a very similar way. That's why someone like Jim Steins is really. That record will never get beaten. Oh, the way the game's played today, no. Yeah. No, not even close. It was amazing when I heard about Kate Simpson having played every game for seven years. I thought that... And the way that the game's played these days, seven years is an impressive effort. And he's probably only got half the way to where Jim Stein's got. Yeah. But, yeah, as I say, I'm getting what I thought I'd get from Fremantle. So, yeah, I mean, the other, the big underachiever this year, and this will surprise some people, I'd say is Gold Coast. The fact yeah, that they haven't won fair. a game this year, that's well that's, true, that, they've taken a step back this year. And it's not only that they haven't won, it's that they've had some games where they've been absolutely... They should have beaten Frio, they should have beaten GWS, and they, they should have beaten Melbourne. They should have beaten Essendon. They had their chance yeah, to beat Essendon yeah. too. They should have beaten North Melbourne, you could even that's say, true. the game at the yeah. Dome. But they've had games where they, um, but they've had games where they've been insipid. Uh, they've been worse than GWS. And yeah, I mean, right now, if you were to say, gun to your head, who's going to win a premiership first out of Fremantle, GWS, and G- Gold Coast? I'd say GWS. Oh God, that's such a good question. <laughs> that was on the uh, the West Australian Football Survey. Oh, right. okay. There was a question: Who's going to win the premiership next, Fremantle, GWS, or Gold Coast? And I went GWS purely because. If you look at their yeah. potential to grow, I actually think Fremantle, they could, in a couple of years, they're going to start sliding. Gold Coast have shown this this year they're not growing, whereas GWS, I mean, if nothing else, a forward line, 
featuring Cameron and Patton. That just, oh, you'd lick your chops looking at that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I've said in a previous podcast as well, you know, I think that the reports of their dynasties are um, exaggerated at best, but... Dynasties. You, sorry, it's the American in me. Yeah, um, that's all right. <laughs> but I, I'd find it hard to believe that uh, as Dan's made Jamie Rogers cuts off on the screen. Yeah, I was just looking at that, yeah. <laughs> That I do find it hard to believe that they're not going to win one somewhere along the line. Both of those teams, who the two expansion, the clubs. two expansion clubs, just beca- just purely because of the volume of talent. I think that they'll find it hard to keep all of their talent, but they they've oh, had once enough the salary cap restrictions. Go, yeah. Well, they've had enough. They've got enough concentration of talent from one yeah. particular time period that. Once they get into that five or six year mark in their career, that yeah. they'll explode. And oh, they'll I probably mean, explode simultaneously, but. Yeah, as it, I'm thinking about it, the reason that you said that's the reason why I would say GWS, and I think that they've got the good, they've got the good defensive back end as well in Phil Davis. I was going to say the the best thing for them is that if you've got blokes like Cornelio Green. Yeah. And um, Trelaw delivering mm. the ball onto the chest of Cameron and Patton is you wouldn't want to be up against them in three years' time. Yeah, no, I, I, that's it. I mean, um, the only team I can think of right now who could possibly cover that sort of thing is West Coast yeah. with blokes like Glass, McKenzie, and Schofield mm. as three key backmen. Other than that. When Cameron and Patton are both up and running, you can yeah. take one of them out and the other one's just going to kill you. Well, the thing is, you know, by the time that we're talking about the Glass will probably have retired. Oh, Glass will be gone, so, yeah. yeah um, he's got two years yeah. left in him. And I think that, yeah, in terms of the, in terms of what we're talking about there, yeah, as you say, that's, that's the reason why I would put my hand up and say GWS is that I think yeah. that they've got strength in they've got good strength in it's young the board young key position yeah. players that that's really important that they can and if they're smart they they'll probably you know if they if they picked up Ben Reed for instance who's still yet to sign with Collingwood their goal to goal line looks incredibly impressive yeah. all of a sudden I mean you've got a lot of with free agency coming up yeah you've got to look at that and think there are lot of guys, aren't they? On average, they say that about a third of the players come out of contract every year. Yeah. So, and your job is to, you know, if you're a list manager, your job is to make sure that the guys you want to keep never come out of contract. So, um, you know, Lance Franklin comes out of contract in 18 months, but they're working on a deal right now. Oh, man. Stuff the, like that. You'd throw the you bank know. at him, wouldn't you? GWS, they have, there'll be a good opportunity for those guys moving forward, I agree. Gold Coast seems to have all their talent concentrated in their midfield, whereas GWS, it's a little bit more spread across the ground, but they actually do have the, the tall key yeah. position side of things well and truly sorted out. I mean, even like, you talk about Davis, even someone like Tim Moore, yeah. who's, who's probably going to play all 20, 22 games this year, he is someone who you can... He reminds me of Darren Glass a lot, actually, who's sort of just... He's, he's not, not flashy, not showy, no one's ever going to pay any attention to him. But every single week, you're going to count on him more often than not to just yeah. nullify the key forward from the opposition. Yeah, and if, if he's able to do that with a modicum of success, he's probably a third tall defender size, but he's yeah he's, he's doing a, a good, solid job for them. And they'll get the chance to, as I say, to pick off guys, get some more experience into their team. I think that they're... Their strategy of bringing in the corners and the powers of the world is really and important. So, yeah, look, as I say, I see GWS having a brighter future. I like their, their recruitment approach that they've taken thus far. And you like Choco Williams' as coach? Absolutely. Because he, he will call a spade a spade. And the guys, as they're coming through, they're going to need that. They're, they're going to need the, the right constructive thing. The other thing about GWS that I like is... When you watch them, it's very, very clear what they're trying to do. So you can see what they're looking to do with their game plan. And I can see it being, with, with the, when the guys get, you know, the bigger bodies and a little bit more experience, I can see that being quite effective. So I mean, the real surprise for me was that they re-signed Guy McKenna already. And I know they said, well, I don't think they said, but the reason they did that is because they don't want speculation about that when they go through the season without a win. Yeah. But... I mean, if you look at the guys who are available at the moment, even as I say, even someone like a Neil Craig and and these sorts of guys, if so you I had mean, them available instead of Guy McKenna, I think McKenna got dealt a little bit of a dud here. I'm trying and I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. 
For it's not. It's not a slight upon McKenna. The uncontracted. The... If you look at the return that they've got from their uncontracted players, put Ablett to the side yeah, because he was a given, and yeah, he's yeah. been probably he's an outlier at that. Yeah, club. I mean, unfortunately for them, Nathan Bock getting injured's really hurt them. Even Jared Brennan going down this year. Well, I no, well, the problem with Jared Brennan is Jared Brennan's got a badly strained heart, in that his heart's the size <laughs> of a pea. <laughs> Um, I, I remember after the Eagles game over here, I watched it and I was like sitting there talking to my to my dad about it, and I'm like, this guy, this guy's nothing. As like I was sitting there saying, they're paying this guy six hundred grand. He's crap. Like yeah. he he doesn't have a position. He doesn't want to run hard. He doesn't want to put any. He's a bit de- of the Jack Watts. He doesn't want to put any defensive pressure on whatsoever. He's the biggest front runner going around. More so than Alan Dyer. Ooh, yeah, that's a ball. <laughs> it's been hard to tell with Dyday in yeah. more recent times because A, he hasn't been on the field too much, and B, Colin well. would have been so successful. But um, the Eagles game, he just looked completely disinterested. He didn't want to be there. And when you're getting cut, when you're playing as a key forward and you're getting carved up by a guy playing his sixth game, who's probably a third tall defender at best, yeah. it's not a good sign for your future, and especially when you're being paid so much. You know, Nathan Cracker's already left the club and gone home. Harbrow hasn't really given them that much. No. Fraser hasn't played this year. Oh, Fraser, Fraser and, won't play another you know, game, I'd say. I wouldn't think so either. No. And, you know, Riscatelli's been a little bit up and down as well. They just, you know... The when mercenary. You, well, <laughs> when, you, when you look at it relative to... Um, as you said, take Abbott out of it. You look at what, what GWS have done. They went... Big with these with these other guys to the side, but you know that in Davis they've got a guy who'll be a key defender, uh, a defender for them, key position player anyway for yeah. ten years. Yeah, absolutely. They've got he's a, he's a prospect you know, for the future. They've got Callum Ward who'll be in their midfield for seven to nine years. Thomas Bug is another one who comes to mind, and um, Jonathan Giles. Yeah, well, Giles was a great pickup. Yeah, they pick someone like that up for pretty yeah. much nothing. They were a bit smarter with how they went about picking the guys that were uncontracted. They picked their targets a little bit better. So many Reese Palmers and your um, Joe McDonalds. Well, see, I would say I would say even Reese Palmer, mate. Reese Palmer yeah. made a lot of sense. They probably paid him too much, but oh. he made sense with regards to where they were at. Because one one thing about Reese, he can find the ball. Yeah. He just can't kick it when he gets it. <laughs> but the McDonalds, the Cornses, the Brogans, the Powers. Yeah. Really sensible the way that they've done that because they know they've got to cut their list. Bring these guys in, show them, you know, what it takes to be a professional at this level with these guys. I mean, Chad Corn set such a good example yeah. for what yeah. what you have to do to train and prepare for a game. You got to think that that's rubbing off on the kids. Well, that's I mean that's the sort of Ablett aside. You look at Gold Coast right now and you think they don't really have those those leaders at the club. Well, I'd say. They, Dave's everyone quick, very quick to forget Dave Swallow because he's been he's been injured for a while now. Yeah. But he's. But I mean that in itself, though, for a young guy to have missed that much footy, don't you think that immediately, I guess, downgrades the sort of output that you're going to expect from him for a guy to get injured that much? Whereas you compare it to someone well, like say Adam Goods, yeah. or even uh, I mean to cross sports, Roger Federer, mm. the guys who are just going to be immense purely because they never get injured. Don't well, I think the fact that he's got that much injuries that it's To be honest, Swallows was a freak accident that caused a lot of his problems. Mm. His was a kind of a freak collision thing. I think the thing about Swallows, Swallows got the... Swallows one of the few guys in either of those teams who's got that, that body strength right away from the get-go. Yeah. He's got the body ready to play AFL football right now. I mean, the... I do wonder with some of these kids in these teams how much of them are going to have what I like to call Callahan-itis. Craig Callahan, and Daniel Kerr is another good example of it, called Kerr-itis too. Craig Callahan, when he, when the Dockers first started, 17-year-old yeah. kid, didn't was, was small, wasn't really all of that strong. His body took such a pounding playing in the midfield for the first six or seven years of his career that his career was pretty much shot at age 26, 27 years old. I wonder how many how many body blows these guys have taken and what impact that will have on their career moving forward. On their... Um, or well, at least on their durability or yeah, their longevity. is the word I was yeah. yeah. How many of them will still be around at age 30 and playing at that sustained yeah. level? That's kind of the, the question I have. I think that's a wrap for, think, yeah. for 16. Yeah, I think it's good. I think we've been going for <laughs> a little bit more than 16 minutes, so <laughs> maybe 16 versions of 16 minutes. I guess until next time... 
Leiderhausen. Leiderskaders. <laughs>